Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cochilillo. And before we get started, I would like to thank the contributors to my show. Executive producer, Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger. Senior editor, Amanda Steele, author of Ghost of Me. Binaural production engineer, Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great. And monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And if you are interested in becoming a contributor to this show, all you have to do is go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com. And there's a whole bunch of information there on different ways you can can contribute. Uh, some of them are simple as uh, just sharing or tweeting an episode or something like that. And now, without further ado, we have our guest for today, Paul Blake Smith. And he has written a book on President Eisenhower's Close Encounters. And this is a topic I've really been wanting to cover for a long time. Thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for having me on. I hope the weather is better where you are, but uh, we're indoors, so we'll get to it without interruption. Well, it's raining here. <laughs> it's sort of the rainy season down here. Well, you had it yesterday. Maybe we pushed it on further south where, uh, from where I live in uh, southern Missouri. Well, I think it kind of comes in the other direction usually, so you're probably going to get more rain. Lovely. <laughs> so um, what got you down the President Eisenhower rabbit hole? Well, uh, when I grew up in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, across the state um, uh, in the uh, 1980s and 90s, before I moved uh, away from there, uh, I learned about uh, the Cape Girardeau UFO crash uh, from 1941, and I would read about that um, in dribs and drabs in books. And books on UFOs would often make this reference to President Eisenhower once met with aliens. And I'm thinking, what? That's crazy. A president of the United States meeting with extraterrestrials. Well, I really was intrigued. I kept reading more. There were sources that claimed quite seriously that this did happen. And I thought, wow, where is there a book on this? So just like the Cape Girardeau UFO crash of 1941, I kept waiting and waiting. I decided I'll just research this and write my own book. And the same thing goes for the Eisenhower tale. Uh, since the 80s and 90s, I've been uh, putting together dribs and drabs and more intensely in the last five years. And now the book is out and gotten good reviews and some very nice comments from folks. Uh, it's from foundations and you can still get it on amazon.com. And uh, I notice also that uh, down through the years, you've seen this subject uh, mentioned for about two minutes on uh, something like ancient aliens mm -hmm. or MUFON Hangar One or aliens decoded or declassified, whatever the shows call them. So uh, other people take it seriously, but who's going to dig into this? Well, I finally did. And uh, I think folks will find it very interesting. Absolutely. So I've never heard of this 1941 crash. What? How dare you? Well, um, not too many people in my own hometown had. Some had and some had not. 
And the people who had just said, oh, I heard a rumor or two, or my grandparents used to talk about it long ago in a matter-of-fact manner, and I wish I'd paid more attention. But in uh, late April of 1941, uh, someone called into the Cape Girardeau, Missouri Fire Department and Cape Girardeau Police Department. They shared the same building and said there's been a terrible accident, a fireball. I think an airplane has crashed on my farm. We need help. So the Cape Police and Fire Department went rushing to the scene and uh, people left behind in the fire department started placing calls to leading citizens around town, like maybe a doctor or a nurse of the hospital, thinking there's going to be people on the ground needing medical attention. So they raced out to this uh, farm in the countryside about 12 or 13 miles or so from downtown. And they got out there and that was no airplane. It was not cylindrical with wings or propellers or exhaust. It was a circular craft broken open and there were no human bodies on the ground, just three small uh, dead gray aliens with big black eyes, long skinny arms and legs, um, four and a half or so feet in length. And uh, they were, two of them were dead and one was just barely still living and he expired on the ground and people were gathering, farm community people, and uh, there was a military person there on site and the sheriff's department, according to a witness, uh, he was there. And uh, after a while, uh, the military really came in, they hemmed in the site, uh, told everyone to put down the debris and uh, take no pictures, we'll take your camera film, et cetera and no uh, souvenirs, no evidence of any kind. You're never to speak of this again. So a few people did, happily, uh, even though they'd been sworn to secrecy. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, one was a Cape Girardeau fireman who said on his uh, deathbed with stage four cancer that I was at that uh, UFO crash of 1941. Uh, the, the military caught me trying to sneak a piece of shrapnel or debris from this weird crash. And he said that the bodies were alien. It was an alien crash and that uh, the military chewed him out and forced him to hand over the piece of debris and kicked him out of the crash site. And in the aftermath, he felt that he was being watched around town to see if he was going to take revenge by blabbing the story. And he felt his phone was tapped. And in researching the story, I found out that the director of the FBI and President Roosevelt were wild about tapping people's phones. The laws were not uh, <laughs> very clear or very enforced in those days. So FDR used to sit in the White House and read transcripts of his political enemies from phone taps. And that seems pretty outrageous, but it was the thing that they did before uh, uh, laws were strengthened in the, the course of uh, the coming years. So uh, it, it seems as though the crash remains and the bodies were taken down south about uh, uh, 30 miles or so to Sykeston, Missouri, where there was a military airfield uh, training program for pilots, and it may not have lasted long there. Uh, it may have been taken to Washington, which is where all the national figures were. This is in the days of, even before the Pentagon, we had no CIA or uh, NSA in those days. And uh, it was six years before the Roswell crash. So uh, it's a fascinating story, and I wrote a book called Mole 41, The Bombshell Before Roswell, and the folks at Ancient Aliens thought highly of that and, and put about two minutes of airtime on it and showed the cover of my book, and I revised it uh, 
and updated it just a wee bit in the last uh, six months or so, and that's out on Amazon. So uh, it's uh, an intriguing tale. I put together all the clues I could, but uh, darn it, everyone's dead from those days, and even their children are deceased. So it was really tough to research and find uh, anyone left um, who knew a lot about it. Uh, the problem was in 1941, if you were told to keep your mouth shut, you did what the government instructed you to do. So uh, only a few people uh, would talk about it now and then, and uh, I'm glad they did. And I put together all the uh, pieces of the puzzle, and I think it's uh, a terrific story that deserves uh, something like a movie or a TV movie or something of that nature, uh, you know, to put it up there on par with Roswell. Wow. Do you have any idea where they took the craft or took the bodies? I believe they were taken to Washington, D.C., so that military leaders and the president, who was handicapped and not e able to easily get around Franklin Roosevelt, uh, wanted to view it just like anyone else. And uh, there's a wild story, and apparently it is a true allegation, at least, that uh, the uh, crashed disc was cut up in pieces and the bodies and the debris was boxed up and it was all placed in a storeroom well below the U.S. Capitol building. Uh, the president and the vice president were all hardcore 33-degree Freemasons and they treasure and value the U.S. Capitol building, which was created during uh, Freemason George Washington's day. And they have something in masonry about burying things deep below the earth, all their little valuables. And you see some of that in the um, TV show, um, Oak Island, The Curse of Oak <laughs> Island, where uh, they're pinning this down now to Freemasons and the Knights Templar and how they buried things several stories down below the ground. And uh, at any rate, uh, a man called me, a um, very old man. Uh, a couple of years ago and said that, uh, Paul, the story about um, an eyewitness seeing uh, uh, three dead bodies in glass jars below the Capitol and this debris is true. Uh, my father took me down below the Capitol on my last day of school in the, in the early 40s. He, he couldn't remember what year. Uh, I'm sure it would have been uh, the spring of 41. Uh, this would have been about a month after the accident. And he said, uh, he took me underneath the Capitol. He was, a, uh, his dad was a member of the Roosevelt administration from the Bureau of Statistics. And they opened the door and they went in and looked over these dead bodies. And his dad didn't have much to say and said, well, this is a, you know, a storeroom. We better get out of here and shut the door. And his father never spoke of it again, but it's another eyewitness account that said that um, uh, these bodies were stored uh, at least temporarily and I'm sure they were uh, eventually dissected, given a, an autopsy, and that the craft itself was dissected in a kind of uh, metallurgical autopsy, probably at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which even in those days had a top-notch metallurgy lab. So you would take any captured airplane, like the Germans or Japanese in the days before World War II, uh, and you would take them there and dissect them and look them over and see how they... Uh, the uh, the allied or the Axis powers uh, put together their airplanes. So they probably took the crashed UFO there and uh, eventually looked it over. And what happened after that, I do not know. Uh, there are some interesting uh, memos uh, uh, leaked from the Franklin Roosevelt administration in which he mentioned these celestial wonders that have come to us. They must remain state secrets. 
and investigated by the Committee for Non-Terrestrial Science and Technology. Well, he couldn't come right out and say in front of his secretaries writing this down, we've got a crash spaceship from uh, an, an alien world. So he couched it in the best terms he could. Uh, these memos from the 1940s I placed in the back of my book. And uh, I believe they are authentic. And I believe the whole thing really did happen. Uh, I just uh, wish we had a piece of debris. I've never been able to pin down the precise farm site. And if I did, I wouldn't tell anyone because it would probably be inundated with people, you know, not only from around the community, but from around the world. Uh, somebody's farm would be flooded with visitors. And I would probably get sued for releasing the, uh, the description or the address of the place. So even if I knew, I wouldn't really tell anyone but uh, it'll probably remain a mystery for a while longer. Uh, hopefully, you know, the U.S. Congress has mandated the, that the Pentagon turn over their UFO reports uh, by sometime in June and give us a report that they're going to tell the American people about. I don't have a lot of confidence in that. Uh, I think they'll still somehow find a way to shield their top secrets. But if they wanted to start somewhere, why not go back to the 1940s and say, yes, we collected this material, and uh, we can tell you about it because now everyone's dead from those days and all the uh, sources and methods that they used to acquire this information and uh, these reports and such, they're all long since deceased. Uh, but we'll see what happens. It's very interesting. Uh, a lot of people think we're really going to hear uh, from official Pentagon military sources and reports that, yes, we are being visited and there's not much we can do about it. Yeah, I have recently interviewed uh, Stephen Bassett, and he's that's what he does. He's over here in Washington now trying to get them to disclose information. Have, have you yourself tried to get any documents from the Freedom of Information Act? Uh, just one, and I was uh, researching the FBI agents uh, in Cape Girardeau in 1941, and I couldn't find the darn name anywhere, so I did... Uh, uh, to contact, uh, I think, the FBI, um, and they finally told me, and of course, he's long since deceased, there was an FBI agent reportedly at the scene of the Cape Girardeau crash, and I thought, oh, that can't be right. Cape Girardeau didn't have an FBI office back in uh, April of 1941, and in researching this, I found out they did, and it opened in early March of 41, so yes, he would have been called uh, the police were there, the fire department, it's only natural. They thought at first it was an airplane crash. So uh, this story began to get um, more and more famous around the turn of the century, around the year 2000. It was on Art Bell's Coast to Coast and with Linda Moulton Howe, who eventually interviewed me for that show. And uh, my book uh, I put together in the years after all of that. And I was on coast to coast with um, George Knapp on a Sunday night for a couple of hours. That was exciting. And That's we got the, uh, yeah, support, supportive calls. And then I rehashed the story uh, in November of this past year for George Norrie, who lives in Missouri. And I mm -hmm. think he said his grandchild went to um, Southeast Missouri State University in Cape Girardeau, as I did. And that uh, George has been in Cape Girardeau and, and looked around. I don't know if he knows of the crash site himself. If he does, we'll have to follow him down there and follow him around. But uh, uh, it's uh, just a thrilling story uh, that should have been the big bombshell of all time, but it got squelched 
And uh, to this day, it's only known in dribs and drabs. Right. And uh, I, I sure wish somebody would come forward um, uh, with some metal. Uh, supposedly, there's a fellow in the area who has a bag of metal shrapnel. Uh, this was uh, information taken from the Topics Forum. Uh, a gentleman uh, wrote that my grandparents owned the farm, and anyone can claim anything on the internet. Let's make that clear. <laughs> uh, we can't believe everything we hear, but the man wrote on Topics that my grandparents owned the farm where the crash occurred. And they told me only a little bit about it and they were frightened and they didn't want me to know much, but I gathered up what information I could. He said, I flew to Cape Girardeau. I went to the crash site and I found the old farmer who had bought the farm from my grandparents. And he said that uh, he was not told about any spaceship crash. However, he was digging uh, in the ground and found these strange bits of metal that he couldn't bend or cut. And they had strange hieroglyphic uh, symbols imprinted in them. And wow, that's interesting. And so he stashed them all in his barn. And the guy who wrote this on the forum said, well, the barn is now torn down. I couldn't get the old guy to tell me what he had done with this debris. And I fear that uh, somebody, come along, somebody could have come along and either talked him out of it or stole it, or he buried it somewhere that we'll never know. It, it frightens a lot of people to... Uh, uh, know that extraterrestrials could be involved and that the government doesn't want you to know and they could be even more harsh with you than any alien race. So um, <laughs> that is something that uh, George uh, Knapp reports in Las Vegas. He said, uh, I found eyewitnesses are far more scared of the federal government than they are of any alien race. I probably uh, no, would be too. Yeah, you wouldn't want to be harassed or have men in black show up. Uh, just the other day, a gentleman I went to high school with contacted me and said, I heard that um, Cape Girardeau story around 2000, and I began to investigate and go to the public library and look up books and write to UFO researchers. And he said, uh, the, uh, I went back to the library a few days later, and uh, the librarian said, oh, yes, we had two men in dark suits here were asking about you. And uh, like, what? <laughs> They wanted to know about you and researching this UFO thing in, here in town. And uh, who these men were, were not clear. It sounded like government agents or something that uh, around the year 2000, I guess you did not want to, they did not want this spoken of. And things have changed over the last 15, 20 years. Uh, almost everything seems to be coming out nowadays. And there are videos online taken by citizens. And you almost just can't reasonably deny that we are being visited anymore. There's so many videos uh, of UFOs or a quick glimpse of some sort of gray creature that walks through the woods and people are talking about it. It's on television shows like the Travel Channel mm -hmm. and Ancient Aliens. Things are becoming much more mainstream and acceptable now. So it's just really super tough to, for anyone in the government to say, oh, no, we're not being visited. Yeah, yeah, they, it is getting more difficult for them. Um, but you're funny. I mean, I do fear, I fear the government too more than I do aliens. Yeah. And, and sometimes I, I, I really wonder like what they protect, you know? Like they've basically let, like all my alien episodes, they've left me alone. But actually one of the things that you've written about is one of the things that, like, like I think you've written a book right on JFK, that's right. Yes, I have. So I had interviewed somebody. I think his name was Jack O'Shaughnahan or something like that. 
And um, his uh, father was a mobster. Oh. And they were involved with the Jimmy Hoffa thing. And some of that revolved around the Kennedy assassination. And uh, that's like the, I don't know how they did it, but I, I swear, I, I after I recorded that episode, which kept cutting in and out. Um, and when I went to go post the episode, because I had checked that, that I had it after I recorded it and I had it. But when I went to go post the episode, it was gone off, oh, both, wow. my, off both my computers. And yeah. then like a week later, both those computers, which were Macs, both died the same week. What a coincidence. Huh. <laughs> you don't mess with the mob and you don't mess with the government that is involved with the mob. But, you know, that was back in the early 60s. It's hard to believe there's still all that concern. Uh, no one bothered me when I wrote JFK and the Willard yeah. Hotel plot. So uh, uh, lots of other researchers have pushed out books. There's like hundreds of books now on the Kennedy assassination and documents have been released and uh, it's pretty mainstream on TV and Oliver Stone's film. Mm -hmm. So again, uh, people have their opinions out there and it's tough for the government to deny now that, uh, oh, Oswald just woke up one morning, decided he wanted to be famous and shot the president. And that's the end of the story. Well, if it is the end of the story, release all the files. It should be very simple. Mm -hmm. Release every bit. And they're still not releasing like uh, close to a million documents, as I understand it. Yeah, that, that was definitely a web. Like his uh, opinion was that the you know the government was working sort of hand in hand with right. the mafia, and and the unions were also in on it. And uh, I don't know, Kennedy was going to reveal something, and they didn't want it, and so the the basically assassinated him. And apparently they kept Jimmy Hoffa alive. And I guess he was like in something like what we have now is like the witness protection program. I put together a top 10 list, if you want to call it that, in my first chapter of my book, JFK and the Willard Hotel plot. And it's very clear from the start, Carlos Marcello, the gangster, and Santos Traficante, his uh, partner in crime, hated Kennedy for everything they did and stood for, and they wanted the ultimate revenge. They knew he would be traveling about in open car motorcades, very poorly protected, and then a shot or two from high above would get him, and they got him. Uh, this is what the mafia does. Uh, they may have had some government assistance, and that's something that would be very disheartening if uh, and shocking if it was revealed. So I think that's the main reason they keep these files hushed up and they try to pin the blame on Oswald alone. I'm fairly convinced Oswald was firing, but he was only a small piece of the puzzle. He was the dummy they threw over to the police because when the president gets killed, uh, someone has to go to jail and we all have to be put at ease that, uh, oh, it was just one nut with a gun. Uh, I think it was a good deal more than that, but this was uh, 1963. And if you revealed everything to this day, I think most people would say, huh, that's kind of nice or that's interesting and then move on. Mm. It's uh, that much now in our rearview mirror and, and in history and in the history books. And people are more concerned with what's going on today. Uh, maybe young people don't even have much of a clue, I'm afraid. <laughs> they probably don't. Yeah. Um, do you think that Oswald was under the influence of some type of mind control? Uh, probably not. Um, 
even when he was a teenager in junior high, he expressed uh, interest in Marxism and the library remembered him uh, at the school library, sitting there and the, reading these dusty old books on Marxism and talking about it way back then. I don't think that was an act. He was trying to find his Marxist utopia. He went to Russia and came back. He was discouraged that communist world did not really uh, give him what he wanted. And he was thinking that Castro and his government down there would be a better fit and was talking about immigrating there and taking his wife, who did not want to go. <laughs> he liked America. <laughs> Uh, who would want to go. And he really wanted to go. And I think he wanted to kill the president and then maybe sneak away. I don't think he uh, wanted in any sense to be caught. And I don't think he was all that proud when he was caught. In fact, he said, oh, I didn't do it. I'm innocent. Uh, I'm just a patsy. And as uh, one of the Dallas cops said, that's what almost everyone we arrest says. They, Oh, I didn't do this. It wasn't me. You've got the wrong guy. So Oswald kind of fit the pattern of a lone nut loser. Um, he wasn't all that um, uh, stable mentally or uh, emotionally. His wife uh, reported that, um, honestly, that Oswald beat her just for smoking a cigarette or uh, not wearing the clothes he wanted her to wear when he, she was critical of him. And he would uh, just walk around with his um, index finger and when he was at the seldom uh, he seldom went to work. And when he did, he walked around with that index finger pointing to people and saying, bam, like he was pretending to shoot someone. That's how mean and nasty and stupid he was. Uh, I don't think it was uh, like a, a Manchurian candidate. I just think he really wanted uh, to be somebody at last and participate in this, get paid and uh, get away uh, scot-free. And he, he blew the whole thing there <laughs> or they threw him over. So you don't buy into the uh, the guy on the grassy knoll theory and the different trajectory of the bullet? Yeah, I believe there were shots fired from other rifles, other um, assassins. And one of them was probably behind that picket fence on the knoll. Uh, another one could have come from the uh, overpass. It was very poorly guarded. And there was a man who flashed Secret Service um, uh, identification before the parade. And that's all very nice, except the Secret Service testified later, we had nobody on the parade route. There should not have been anyone with any ID uh, talking about how they were with the Secret Service. So uh, that mystery has never been solved, but I think that would have been somebody who was likely involved in trying to look innocent, uh, maybe even a, a, an assassin in a Dallas police uniform would have gotten away with it too. Uh, it's a fascinating case still, and I hope folks will enjoy my book that you can still get on Amazon. But uh, again, uh, we're getting so far afield from 1963 <laughs> and gangsters in there. Everyone's deceased. And uh, so that um, I, I see interest fading. Uh, another example is they used to have a JFK conference in Dallas every November uh -huh. 22nd. And they've discontinued those now. Uh, like a year or two ago, they stopped because the, the interest is starting to fade. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. So moving on, President Eisenhower meeting with aliens. Oh, yeah, that's what we're here for. <laughs> <laughs> Almost forgot. Me too. <laughs> that was a story that uh, first really got um, blown up, if you want to say, in the early 1980s. 
1982, uh, a National Enquirer article came out. I know they're not the most reputable, but in those days, if you wanted a UFO story out, almost no one else would print it. So they printed a story that said Eisenhower um, saw these aliens and met with them. They were friendly, and uh, it was a very peaceful encounter at an Air Force base. And one of the eyewitnesses was a U.S. test pilot. And he said, the story is actually true. I was there. I was called in for my uh, aerodynamics expertise. They knew the meeting was going to be held in advance. And so they called me in and I watched as Eisenhower spoke in English with the aliens. And he said uh, in 1982, I want to get this story out now because everyone from that encounter is dead and I'm the last person alive and I don't want it to die out. He refused to give his name. So the test pilot told this amazing story and it got picked up and run by some other publications. And uh, it started to show up in other books and little dribs and drabs came in supporting the story. And uh, it, I just thought at first, probably like many Americans, oh, a president didn't meet with aliens. But as I put this together, and I'm convinced to this day, through the weight of circumstantial evidence, Eisenhower did seek out this meeting, and he did pull it off, and he got uh, uh, communication opened up with a race of human-like aliens who were very friendly, and I could tell you what they wanted and what they looked like and how they set it up, if you're interested. Let me see. Am I interested? <laughs> <laughs> I think I am. <laughs> I, I would probably start with a, uh, a congressman from New Hampshire, uh, Henry W. McElroy. Around the year 2010, he released a video, a video on YouTube and made this video statement. And you can still look it up and find it. He said, I worked in the government and I got a hold of some old classified government reports. And they talked about a communications program between like the military, the US military and extraterrestrials during the Eisenhower administration. And the upshot is that we had like um, some sort of communication program, I should think with high frequency radio waves and perhaps binary code, but this was going on. It was quite real. The Congressman wanted to report. And it said that uh, Eisenhower was encouraged to go ahead and meet with these aliens and he uh, the congressman said, it's my understanding that Eisenhower did meet with the extraterrestrials. So why would a, U a, a, a state congressman, Mr. McElroy, risk his whole career, his life, his reputation for some nonsensical lie? I think he was telling another piece of truth, another piece of the puzzle. Uh, it just lends more credence to the story that once he took office, uh, Eisenhower won in a landslide in November of 52, that uh, I think they began fairly uh, quickly uh, uh, digging into this communication program and setting up uh, a meeting face-to-face. -face, and they pulled it off about one year into office in uh, February of 1954. Uh, that's when Eisenhower suddenly decided he's just got to go on a golf vacation. Now, Eisenhower almost always went golfing in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, right near the South Carolina border. It was a short flight from Washington, and he just loved the Augusta National Masters uh, Tournament course, and they loved it. He loved it so much, his friends built him a house on the fairway, and it's still there. <laughs> uh, that's somebody who loves golfing there. And yet, Eisenhower had to fly over 2,500 miles to spend a few days golfing in the desert of California. 
That, I'm sure, was a cover story, an excuse for him to be out there, for they set up this meeting with extraterrestrials at the remote airbase nearby called Edwards Air Force Base. It was a good deal smaller and less famous than it is now. They used to land the space shuttles out there in the 1980s, 90s. Well, it's out in the desert with hardly anyone living nearby, so aliens could come in and land and take off without anyone really seeing it. It's a perfect place for security and privacy. So Eisenhower just used the excuse, I'm going to play golf here for a few days and stretch out in the warm sun of the desert. And uh, one night, February 19th, 1954, on a Friday night, I feel was the night that he sneaked away from his golf vacation under the uh, cover of darkness. And that was the night there was a big party at a hotel in town that assembled all the media. And I don't think this was a coincidence. This was the distraction to keep them from following Eisenhower around or reporting that he had left town under mysterious circumstances. This was a top secret trip. So Eisenhower managed to get away without the press finding out. Uh, They had this party and drinks and smokes and food and entertainment at the hotel. And he went out to Edwards Air Force Base, was flown out there. And uh, he kept a a special bodyguard contingent of about six men around him. And they went out to the Air Force Base hangar where aliens had already landed earlier in the day and they'd been checked out by base officials and felt that they were safe and friendly and kind and and had no evil intention. So uh, out, um, there were five airships. Uh, Three were circular disks. I think they rested on uh, thin tripods and put out ramps. And the aliens walked out on two feet like we do. They look very much like humans only the test pilot who was there said they looked like us, but not quite exactly. Uh, they had, were, had somewhat different or misshapen features by our standards. That's probably something like nostrils and chests and lungs for breathing a dip, different atmosphere on their planet. Uh, I refer to these aliens that came down as uh, cousins of the human beings, almost like uh, they set up a family reunion, you know, Just as you would with your family, you would negotiate back and forth. Where are we going to meet? What are we going to talk about? What are we going to do? And so uh, they did this. And Eisenhower even had a movie camera set up to record this. Uh, There's a new movie out called The 11th Green by Christopher Munch. And in the artwork and in the movie, he shows uh, movie cameramen recording the big event as aliens stepped out of their craft and walked peacefully, uh, empty handed. Uh, no weapons, and walked up to Eisenhower and stopped at some point, and he greeted them, surrounded by his bodyguards, and they communicated in English. And that certainly seems to indicate they've been studying our culture and had learned our language. Uh, you'd better if you want to land and talk face-to-face to the man in charge, shouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's such a, a wild story. Do you think that he made a treaty with them? Um um, one of the stories is that there was a treaty made where right. he allowed uh, them to abduct a certain amount of people and do well, tests on them in exchange for technology. Yes and no. That's basically true, I found. But it may not be quite as harsh as we put it. Uh, the aliens wanted to impress Eisenhower. And what I say is they overplayed their hand. They showed what their craft can do. They took them up and they as the president watched on the runway, 
the aliens took some of their craft up in the air and buzzed around at uh, top speeds and spun around and stopped in midair and such like that and landed. And that really uh, unnerved the president. <laughs> He's thinking about the American people and what their reaction would be if they saw this, you know, aliens openly coming down out of the, our skies and showing off like this and in disrupting possibly our uh, jet plane traffic and uh, showing that clearly we're not in charge of our own skies. He wasn't too thrilled, even though he was impressed by the, the air show. And then the aliens did something else that even further un unnerved him and rattled him. Uh, they said President Eisenhower uh, grew a little red in the face, I think, uh, with embarrassment uh, as the aliens stepped out of their ship and started chatting with him and then cloaked themselves and made themselves invisible to the human eye. They were there and kept talking or made noise. But they were invisible. And then they came back and moved uh, to different places on the runway. And uh, the president was really shaken up by this. Like, oh, my goodness. He told them, we can't have this in our world. You would set off a panic. You're so advanced. We can't have you teaching this to anyone or showing off like this. Let's come to an agreement where you'll agree to stay pretty aloof. And in exchange, we'll uh, allow you to land at a a Nevada base, um, an air base out in the remote desert, and you can uh, maybe set up a lab or something. Uh, it's part of a 2017 leaked document, a Defense Intelligence Agency document that was from uh, January of 1989 that reported all of this, said Eisenhower did meet with aliens and set up a treaty where they would agree to remain uh, pretty aloof and, and not scare us into a panic. That's what Eisenhower feared. And that in exchange, uh, we would get uh, a little technology and we would give them uh, some um, biological specimens and that they would be allowed to uh, examine people as long as they did it in a kind of rural setting and didn't hurt anyone or put them right back. You know, uh, it was difficult for Eisenhower to negotiate any treaty when they were so advanced. And one man who said he read of the files of this uh, reported um, that this is exactly what Eisenhower said. He said, you're so advanced, how can we stop you anyway? And he, he was probably quite right. Uh, the man who uh, read that was, um, uh, oh, I forget the fellow's name. He worked at Skunk Works out in the Nevada uh, air, um, not a, a factory or something like that for the latest technology. And he said he was allowed to read a report and that it said Eisenhower met with these beings and we got some high tech stuff from them and he uh, negotiated this treaty. And uh, so uh, that was another source. And gosh darn it, I can't remember the guy's name. But anyway, uh, you'll read it in the book, uh, <laughs> even though my memory's faulty. But this is yet another factor. Uh, somebody said they've seen an official file. Another source reported that um, he saw the film footage. And some of it was in color and some was in black and white. And the black and white footage stops abruptly because the alien technology, they uh, went up in the air in their ships with all their technology working and it killed the mechanisms of the camera, the newsreel camera or movie camera that they were using to record the event. It knocked out the, uh, the camera and that's where the footage end in black and white. And that there's color footage too so uh, that would be exciting to have somebody hack into that and leak it on the internet, wouldn't it? <laughs> that would be fantastic. Yeah. Do you ever wonder why nobody's done that? Like, why hasn't, like, um, 
you know, like the guy from WikiLeaks or someone like that. Well, have you ever seen documents? the yeah the footage of Skinny Bob, the gray alien? Yeah. Uh, that was hacked by someone who got into some Soviet uh, or KGB files. It was KGB footage. There's a special KGB logo from 1942, I think it is, at the start of the film footage. And supposedly that was hacked and leaked online as an example. And that is one creepy looking alien, too. If that was CGI, they did a terrific job. Yeah. But I don't think it is. Interesting. Yeah, uh, there's a man on the internet who wrote, I work with CGI, computer graphic uh, imagery, and he said, this is definitely not CGI. That really is authentic footage of the uh, gray alien with a big bulbous head that seems to throb just a little bit, and his eyelashes go down, you know, his eyelids, mm -hmm. and he looks around, moves around, moves his arm. Oh, that's just uh, one of my favorite videos of all time. <laughs> and that's just one race. Uh, here's another factor for Eisenhower to consider. You let in one race, and what if all the others want to come down? Hey, the door's open. Let's all land mm -hmm. and show ourselves and really set off a panic in human society. So he asked them, please uh, kind of stay away in general. Don't show yourselves too much. Don't approach people, at least in major cities. And if you have to take uh, someone hostage, you'll uh, you know write down the names, and we'll check on that. Well, that kind of went by the wayside. But overall, I think... Um, there might have been this uh, agreement that uh, was uh, fixed up over the course of a year. And then Eisenhower went back in a second story I'm sure you would not like to hear about. You don't want to hear about him going to uh, Holloman Air Force Base and uh, doing this all over again in 1955, would you? Let me think about this. <laughs> of course I do. <laughs> well, maybe you've heard of the late, great Art Campbell, a UFO researcher. Yes. Art put together the story, and it's been on the internet for years, of witnesses who came forward and said that Eisenhower showed up at Holloman Air Force Base in February of 1955, one year later. And he came in Air Force One, it landed on the runway, and while it was sitting there, two silver disks came down. One hovered in midair, and the other landed and put out a ramp, and someone got out from Air Force One and walked over and walked into their spaceship. And they said it sure looked like Eisenhower. Uh, I don't know who else from Air Force One. I guess it could have been an aide or a, a Secret Service agent, but uh, this was a presidential matter, probably top secret. So uh, he may well have been formalizing this agreement after a year of putting out the word, uh, maybe with his top NSA advisor or Secretary of State and how to craft a document. And it's uh, the wording you can read about it in that uh, leaked 1989 DIA document, which I included in my book, that uh, said that basically uh, uh, we agree to give your um, uh, extraterrestrials this base in exchange for uh, remaining at arm's length, uh, don't show yourselves. And I think uh, the document says that every president since Eisenhower has, has adhered to this policy. Uh, they probably know about this and they can't talk about it. When uh, to this day, when Obama and Bush and Clinton go on like Jimmy Kimmel or mm -hmm. Stephen Colbert, and they ask him, the hosts ask him, well, why are you being secretive? You know, what is going on? Are we being visited? And each one of the presidents, the ex-presidents said, well, I can't tell you. That's a secret. And they make a little joke and they move on. They will not give you a straight answer. And I think, therefore, you have an answer that there really is something to this and that the presidents know and we should just go about our business. Frankly, 
it doesn't really change anything that we're being visited and observed by at least one, maybe several races. We all have to get up in the morning and go to work and earn money to pay the bills, whether aliens are watching us or not. Wow. So do you think other presidents have also made deals with aliens or have seen the aliens? This is a tough call. Uh, I can give you a, a circumstantial evidence. There are stories about JFK. I've got information on LBJ in my book and Nixon. But uh, after that, I'm not sure if there was a whole lot of uh, any uh, strong interest or direct contact. Um, I, when I was researching uh, my book and the Eisenhower Treaty with aliens, I tried to find out more information, and I came back from a Google search engine, and it said 10-year agreement. And I couldn't find any more about this. And I thought, well, why did Eisenhower get a 10-year agreement? And lo and behold, he was in retirement in Palm Springs, and who flew in on the exact day of the Eisenhower alien encounter uh, in February of 1964? President Johnson, who went over to Ike, uh, Ike's house and met with him in person. And they met a couple more times, and there were some gaps in LBJ's schedule. And there were two Air Force Ones at the airport. Something funny was going on, and I go into that in my book, where it's very possible that uh, Johnson renewed the agreement after consulting with Eisenhower. And maybe he, too, went to an Air Force base and saw something. Uh, Linda Moulton Howe brought forward a, a, a source that uh, was a scientist who worked at Edwards Air Force Base and said that there was another uh, encounter, uh, a high-level encounter in 1964. So it's another piece of the puzzle. Uh, I think Johnson uh, could have met Eisenhower anywhere, just talked to him over the phone or exchanged letters or had their aides talk to each other, their assistants. It's extremely suspicious that he flew all the way across the country to meet with him on the exact 10-year anniversary of this alien agreement. So that's just one story. I think uh, presidents these days, since like the 80s or 90s, have probably been told a bare minimum and uh, not told a lot and just told, keep this under your hat. Don't ever talk about it. We don't want to set off a panic. I think that's what they're worried about to this day. Uh, Eisenhower's generation remembered the 1938 War of the Worlds radio broadcast. That supposedly, <laughs> you remember that story supposedly set off a panic uh, that was overblown by Orson Welles, but some people did call the radio station, the police station, and ask, are we being invaded? They didn't listen to the uh, advertisements during War of the Worlds radio broadcast that said, this is just a play, it's a fictional story, it's not really happening. They stupidly believed it, and uh, a few people maybe even grabbed their guns in New Jersey, uh, where you're from, and gone out looking in the countryside for aliens, but uh, there really wasn't a mass panic, but there was a perception that there was. And I think uh, that was something the government uh, kept in mind for Cape Girardeau in 1941. We can't let this out, uh, lest the, uh, the people of this country uh, go into a mass panic and affect the stock market. We were just climbing out of the Depression in 41. And in 1954, Eisenhower was the same way. We've got to keep the economy strong and, and not set off... Uh, uh, any sort of uh, disturbance in Wall Street and have people start quitting their jobs or worshiping aliens. Another factor is Eisenhower was a deeply Christian man who was the only president in American history to have himself baptized 
uh, in office. He uh, was in office one month when he had a special uh, Christian ceremony set up where he was baptized, and he really believed in Jesus Christ and wanted everyone else to, and he instructed in God we trust to be put on our money. Mm-hmm. So this was another factor. He didn't want aliens coming here and be worshiping or being worshipped by Americans or anyone else, you know, and, and people just jettisoning their religion, their religious faith. So that was another factor for him to tell them, uh, you're going to have to beat it. And if you have to come here, stay at uh, uh, quite a distance. Hmm. How about the story of uh, Valley and Thor? I've never found that one to be believable. Um, and I put only a, a paragraph in my book about it. Uh, one story claims that he came down in the Virginia countryside and they took him immediately to President Eisenhower <clears throat> at the White House on a specific date. So I looked up in Eisenhower's uh, presidential records and uh, on that specific date, he wasn't even in the country. He was out uh, on a ship at sea in the Caribbean. So it just uh, seems a pretty shaky story to me. Uh, I don't think, uh, even if it were true, it really had much to do with the alien encounter of 54, but I don't put any real stock or faith in that one. Hmm. How about the Richard Nixon taking Jackie Gleason to see a dead alien? That's a fun story, and I've been researching this, trying to piece together a kind of sequel to my book. I'm not sure if I'll have enough uh, information, enough data to flesh out a full-length book. But guess when that happened? Uh, It's a legendary story, and most UFO people, and maybe even lay people, so to speak, who have no interest have heard of it, uh, even briefly, that Nixon hosted comedian Jackie Gleason at an Air Force base while surrounded by an entourage on February 19th, 1973, the exact 19th anniversary of the Eisenhower encounter, which was at an Air Force. I didn't know that. I didn't know that connection. The exact 19th anniversary date. And here's a president uh, at a East Coast Air Force base, and he had some bodyguards around him, and he allowed Jackie Gleason to come in, and uh, supposedly Nixon... uh, knew all about Jackie's UFO obsession, which was legendary. He was absolutely obsessed with UFOs and ETs and had hundreds and hundreds of books on the subject. And they would uh, be something he would talk about in private to his close friends, astronauts that he had on his television show, uh, political people he knew, and that uh, Nixon supposedly took pity on Jackie and decided to show him something uh and i looked up in presidential records and sure enough nixon was in miami and went to the golf tournament that jackie gleason was hosting in the miami area and uh they were there that afternoon and photographed together on that monday the 19th of february 73 and that uh gleason got in a car was either driven or drove himself about 45 miles to homestead air force base where nixon met him and Uh, With an armed guard, they went to this uh, secret lab or special isolated part of the base and went in and saw, uh, according to Jackie's widow, Jackie told her four dead alien bodies, about three foot tall, maybe, and they had big ears and they were a little mangled, like they'd been in an accident of some kind, and they were definitely not from this world. And apparently Nixon didn't tell him too much, uh, just showed him. 
uh, took pity on his friend who really wanted to know the truth. Now, Jackie went home that night, uh, must have been getting close to midnight, and his wife was there and said, where have you been? What's wrong with you? And he was ashen. He was smoking and drinking. He was uh, pale and shaken. And uh, he did not work for almost a year. I looked it up in um, uh, Jackie's uh, biographies. And uh, it said that Jackie told her the whole story that night. And she told uh, Esquire magazine a few years later. And then uh, uh, she wrote an article for the National Enquirer uh, uh, some years later, I believe 1983, and uh, told the story over again, how my husband, Jackie, came home one night and said he'd just seen the bodies of alien beings uh, presented by President Nixon at Homestead Air Force Base. So it makes me wonder if Nixon was at the base and knew he would for something to do with maybe renewing the Eisenhower agreement for another year or 10 years, uh, and that um, he was there anyway and had that business to attend to. And uh, he decided to uh, help out uh, Jackie and show him personally, be kind of a big shot. Mm. Uh, it's interesting to know that um, Nixon's presidential record stop around 8.30 that night and uh, you go into his uh, digitized files and it says documents removed up after that point. And that Nixon did something they don't want to tell you. And then he showed up for breakfast about eight or nine uh, the next morning and went about his regular routine in Miami. Uh, he had a house in Key Biscayne and would vacation there quite frequently. Wow. So there's actually some information to back this story up. Right. Uh, there is proof of Jackie and... Uh, Nixon uh, in this golf cart, yeah. puttering around his golf course with these celebrities. Uh, one of these celebrities was Gordon Cooper, the astronaut, mm -hmm. big Freemason. I found out that um, at least I've heard that Jackie was a Freemason and that uh, they planted Freemason. The astronauts did Freemason material on the moon. It was all about the space program and sending astronauts in the Apollo program to the moon. And uh, it was probably something they talked a lot about extraterrestrials, uh, Gordon Cooper and Jackie Gleason. And Jackie just loved uh, mystical, metaphysical secrets uh, and kept all these books. And when they asked, uh, the press asked a few times, well, what's the story that your wife is telling about you going to Air Force, Homestead Air Force Base and meeting uh, or seeing alien bodies? And he refused to comment. You know, if it was nonsense, he could have easily told them so. Right. And say, oh, that, uh, that story's not true. Don't believe my wife, but he refused to say anything. And again, that gives you a pretty strong clue that, yeah, that story is true, too. It's incredible. So if they're doing it every 10 years, for example, and say Nixon was renewing it, who would be the next president? I guess it would be Carter, right? Right. And he saw a UFO in 1969 and even filed a report a few years later talking about how it changed colors and moved in the sky in Leary, Georgia. And during his 1976 presidential campaign, Carter says, I never laugh at anyone who's seen UFOs because I've seen one. And uh, if I become president, I promise you I'm going to release all the information and be square with the American public on this subject. It really intrigued him. Yes. Once, yeah. Once he got into office, boy, did he clam up fast. He had nothing <laughs> to say. And they've asked him in a few interviews since then, and he's got nothing to say. He won't. He won't say anything. And then he's even backtracked. Well, I don't know quite what it was that I saw in 1969, 
but uh, he would have been president in uh, 1979, uh, 1980. Uh, Reagan became president right. next. Yes, and, it will be Reagan. And he also yeah, and, saw UFO. Yeah, and uh, the, his pilot spoke very seriously about this. He gave an interview and said, I was flying pre uh, Governor Reagan at the time across California. I think it was 1966. And we saw this alien craft in the night sky uh, over California, uh, I think near Bakersfield, was it? And uh, Reagan was all excited and intrigued, and so was the pilot, and they decided to keep it to themselves, but uh, that story leaked out in dribs and drabs since. The pilot finally spoke up and said, that story's true. So it gives you an under another indication that uh, Ronald Reagan was quite intrigued, and I'm sure he had the files brought to him uh, Linda Moulton Howe as a source that uh, came forward and said that, uh, yes, Reagan did receive an extensive uh, UFO and ET briefing at Camp David about one or two months into his administration in the spring of 1981. And they talked about uh, various races that are visiting here. Uh, you never know what to believe or who's telling the truth. Uh, but uh, this information Linda brought forward seems pretty credible uh, I, I looked into this for my latest book research, and that might make a few uh, paragraphs, if not a chapter. But uh, after that, things get a little dicey. Uh, George H.W. Bush became president. Right, he would be he, the next one. Yeah, and he was the former director of the CIA, and they do not like secrets getting out. This would have been the last thing he would have wanted to talk right. about. So, so I would think maybe somewhere between those two presidents, maybe the put together a separate committee to work with the aliens rather than the presidents directly? Uh, I certainly would if I were president. I'd set up some academic uh, brainiacs and some uh, people in physics and maybe military experts on the subject. And that's what many people felt uh, happened in the 1940s when Harry Truman set up the MJ-12 committee, 12 men, right. uh, military academic joint committee that... Uh, uh, the names are all over the internet and have been on and then within documents. It's a fascinating story. It could well be true. Uh, the last person of those people in that original MJ-12 group died, and then uh, some documents on them were leaked uh, and turned up in UFO researcher hands in 1984, I think it was. And there's still a debate to this day whether those documents are real or not. Hmm. Yes, was, then after that, it would have been, I guess, Bush. Well, let's see, who was after Bush? Uh, that would have been President Clinton. Clinton. Yeah, Clinton. He, yeah, he had his own he didn't interest. He did say anything. Yeah, but he didn't say anything. They ask him on talk shows now. Yeah. Man, he gives a flipping answer, and uh, I can't talk about that, or they'd kill me, or something like that. <laughs> and Obama's kind of the same way. They give a, a silly joke. But they won't tell you that um, we're not being visited. There's nothing to it. Don't worry. They never say that <laughs> because it's not true. I don't think we're going to be invaded in any way, shape, or form. Uh, mankind is more diseased than ever. Uh, we've sapped the resources of this planet horribly. There's almost nothing to gain from invading Earth. Uh, we're <laughs> armed to the teeth. We got people who are loaded up with guns and ready to uh, go off and sometimes do in our society, it would be really stupid to invade now as opposed to, let's say, 100 or 200 years ago when we were relatively um, 
unarmed, unprotected, and uh, didn't have quite as many uh, widespread diseases. And there were still uh, various resources like gold and silver or precious metals or ore in the earth. We hadn't sapped them all out of there. Uh, so I really don't think um, any race is preparing an invasion. I think uh, the more you ponder that, the more silly it, it gets. Um, how about the correlation between UFO sightings and nuclear facilities? Uh, that's very intriguing. I've read only a little bit about this, but uh, over and over, these military personnel have come forward to say this story is true, that they hovered over atomic weapon missile sites and disabled them. And it comes back to me to the Cape Girardeau crash in which uh, an Eisenhower document mentioned uh, the propulsion device applied to uh, a super weapon of war, and that would have been the atomic bomb. I think we may have taken some technology from the crashed Cape Girardeau spaceship, alien craft, and applied it to our atomic weapons program. And this is how aliens know to um, uh, break down or dismantle or uh, cut short any atomic uh, missiles we have to mess with them because we use their technology in the first place. Now, that's just a theory, I admit. Mm -hmm. But uh, over and over, these serious military personnel have said that uh, uh, this is going on and has been for decades. This is something Senator Marco Rubio even mentioned not too long ago. He says, are these drones? Are these uh, uh, like foreign uh, adversaries like Russia or China sending craft over that somehow dismantle or disengage our atomic weapons? Or are these aliens? And he wants answers. So he was a driving force behind uh, getting some clauses inserted in recent legislation to get the Pentagon to open up about what in the world is going on. Hmm. What do you think about there, the possibility of there being an underground alien base in Antarctica that was also once occupied by the Nazis. I don't the, have much information. Yeah, yeah, I don't have much information on that. I'd be a little skeptical, mm -hmm. partly because it's so incredibly cold there that human beings can't even last for very long. I don't know if aliens would either, but uh, I'd sure like to see the physical evidence. Let's see some footage or photographs or something. So I remain a bit skeptical on that one. However, it is largely off limits and you can't just go there and start poking around. Uh, uh, it's uh, a continent and there could be places dug in for all we know and dug into the snow, but uh, it's intriguing. But so far, uh, I'm from Missouri. You got to show me. <laughs> yeah. do, do you think, though, that they come here from their home planet or do you think they have nearby bases? That's a tough one. Uh, they may be able to come here through dimensions, portals. Uh, I'm even reading about tunnels through time and space that you can take shortcuts, interdimensional travel and such. And when they get here, I suppose they could have a base somewhere, but we're getting so overpopulated on this planet, it sure would be tough to find a place now where you could come and go in complete privacy with all this satellite photography and air traffic and people poking about, uh, wanting to, uh, to make a scoop in the world. UFO researchers should have found this by now. More military personnel should have uh, uh, leaked this information and then almost nothing comes out. Uh, in this uh, 1989 document, uh, 
for the incoming George W. Bush presidency, January of 89, uh, it talks about how there are some alien races that are uh, living and working on uh, very large spaceships, three of them parked just outside our solar system beyond our detection. It sounds pretty wild, but when you think about it, if they were to come here, they'd need some place to come and go freely with a take maybe take maybe a scout ship and buzz around planet Earth and then go back to this uh, undetectable uh, large uh, facility that's parked in uh, a safe place, if you want to call it that, parked. Uh, and that they uh, the documents say they even have to move these three ships every few years to keep them uh, away from the uh, detection of American technology that. Um, this is where alien races maybe have a science lab set up and study the flora and the fauna and the samples that they take. And uh, they're fascinated by the human race and the terrible things that we're doing to our Earth's environment, our ecology. Right. And it's kind of sad uh, the way we polluted just about everything. And hopefully they'll do something to help us. That would be nice if they could help us. Um... What about like like most recently there has been a lot of talk about disclosure and even like, you know, um, you know, like the Tic Tac video coming out, the Pentagon starting to, you know, mention that they've been researching these things and they don't know what they are. They're not, they're not, they don't know if it's extraterrestrial, but they think it's definitely not from this planet <laughs> kind of yeah. weird thing. My, my do, do, you think do you think yeah, it's going to come out? And yeah, if my, they do come out, that um, one of the results will be that the aliens won't be able to abduct humans anymore. Well, that's a, a interesting idea. I haven't heard of that. That once we start talking about them and, and openly admitting mm -hmm. it, they'll go away. Yeah, well, not that they'll go away, but like the deal's yeah. off at that point. Yeah. Well, you've blown the ball game. Now we're not going to come and visit you. Well, uh, my agent uh, has a, a theory, and she says we're in a process right now, ongoing of gradual disclosure, that they're not gonna dump everything on us at once in a mm -hmm. traumatic big file or footage release or something, that we're being allowed Navy tic-tac videos and the occasional admittance of uh, that uh, we've got these unexplained aerial phenomena and uh, people have come forward from the military with uh, little stories or videos that uh, seem to support this that uh, they're going to continue to kind of break us in mentally and emotionally, intellectually, to accept this uh, without um, a big shocking reveal, that it would be a gradual process. And uh, if that is so, I hope my book uh, takes part mm -hmm. in that and people read it and, and start thinking seriously that, uh, yes, we are being visited and uh, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. And this has gone on for decades in America and kept hushed up for the good of the country. And it probably was, maybe we would have panicked. Uh, maybe there would have been a disrupted society in the forties and fifties. But uh, you have to remember in those times, there was almost no UFO, uh, well, there was no television and there were very few sci-fi movies. You just didn't talk about maybe aliens or spaceships. Uh, there was uh, stuff like moon mullins or Captain uh, America or Buck Rogers uh, in the 21st century or silly comic book type stuff. Mm -hmm. But other than that, you didn't have the mainstreaming of movies and TV shows and videos and documentaries and 
comic books and, and video games and everything that we have now where we're just used to uh, uh, aliens and My Favorite Martian and Mork from Ork and uh, some comedy movie or dramatic uh, TV program. They're all over the sci-fi channel and the history channel now. We've been broken down and emotionally uh, prepared for this. I, I'm quite sure we would handle it a lot better now than they would have back then, don't you think? <laughs> I agree with you. That sounds like a yes to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's uh, still something that would shock some people somewhere. Uh, and li- if you've been living in a cave, I guess, or you just have a narrow mind, you don't want to think about it. You refuse to ponder it. Uh, those kind of people, I think, are in the minority now. I think the majority feel, thanks to Star Wars, Star Trek, and uh, TV shows and movies and ancient aliens that, uh, yeah, we probably are being visited. And, it, and it's exciting and fun to think of the possibilities. And you hear the occasional guy say, yeah, tell the aliens to come on down, have a beer with me. That would be cool. <laughs> Instead of being afraid that, oh, my God, we're being invaded. Right. So um, uh, fear kind of ruins everything. But it's a natural human reaction, mm-hmm. especially if someone's attacking you. But uh, if we could just put aside fear and accept that uh, we're being uh, visited by advanced, uh, into intelligent, highly intelligent uh, creatures that have mastered time and space and have come through uh, the cosmos to visit us, they must be probably pretty peaceful. They haven't invaded or shot us up yet. Uh, I think uh, I would welcome a sighting, but believe it or not, I've never seen a UFO of any kind or an alien or a ghost or Elvis or nothing. I just write about it. Uh, I don't uh, have any personal experiences to share with you. Interesting. I think one of the things that scares most people is during a lot of the abduction or experiencer accounts, there's always a reproductive part of it. It seems like they're using humans to breed something. I agree. I've read some of that, and it is probably the most disturbing part that... um, sperm and ova are being removed from a human body and they're creating a hybrid race. And I don't know what to think that if this is uh, going on for real or it's somewhat exaggerated or people's imagination, or they just want attention. I don't think it's a complete hoax. And if it's happening, there's nothing much we can do about this either. I don't think they're going to be a race that will be released on the planet earth, at least not anytime soon Mm -hmm. with the prejudice and bigotry we have now between our own races. We, do plenty of fighting between uh, what we have now. Uh, I can't imagine. Uh, wasn't there a TV show called V about a, yeah. like an alien race that came to live amongst us and faced prejudice? And, uh, that was kind of cool. But uh, uh, if there is a hybrid race, uh, they couldn't walk around in our society without being harassed or bothered <laughs> or made fun of or taken prisoner, you know? So uh I don't know where such a race of creatures would go unless it's to the alien home planet. Or maybe they can't reproduce on their own. Yeah, that could be. Because, because uh, maybe, maybe spending so much time in space or, you know, without gravity. has One of the theories that, that I've heard, and I think about it a lot, is that the aliens are actually us from the future. And in the future, we went out to explore space and we spent so much time out in space, we evolved, you know, with the big eyes and the big head because of the gravity. And during that process, too, 
they lost the ability to reproduce or we lost the ability to reproduce. So we've had to travel back in time and use like the original human model in order to make new, uh, new beings. I've heard that theory and who knows it might well be true or even in a small way. Uh, you remember Colonel Philip Corso? Mm-hmm. Uh, he said that it was the government's secret understanding, the people in the know from uh, crashed alien recoveries, that these little gray aliens with the big black eyes and the big heads that may have landed in a farm field in Cape Girardeau uh, and other places are bio-robots. They're like half-real organic creatures and they're robots and they were specially designed by intelligent aliens to uh, fly these scout ships and pick up some samples and go back to a mothership or large master laboratory, and that uh, they have no feelings. They have no emotion or sympathy or empathy with us. They just do what they're told, and that's something that is discussed in this uh, 1989 document that I put in the end of my book, President Eisenhower's Close Encounters, and that um, it could well be true that not all aliens that come here are completely organic, sentient beings who uh, feel emotions or sympathy, and that they send uh, like little slaves or robots in their place to do at least some scouting around here. So uh, that could account for some of these weird sightings. But who knows? It could be a, a wild combination of various races with various agendas and various appearances. It's exciting to ponder. Uh, that maybe someday they will step down and say, hey, y'all, we really are here. We tried to talk to you with President Eisenhower. He asked us to stay away, but now we feel like it's a safer time. Uh, we'd like to communicate with you and teach you. Uh, that's what they told Eisenhower. We'd mm -hmm. like to start an educational program for the people of Earth and let them know that they're not alone in the universe. And, Eisenhower didn't take too kindly to that suggestion either. <laughs> and uh, said, no, we can't have this. Uh, we're just not ready. And he was probably right. But it seems like they're doing it anyway. Because one of the topics that I have covered extensively is um, schoolyard um, oh, yeah. visitations. Where they will show up in a schoolyard, they'll land, they'll come out. They'll telepathically communicate to the children about, you know, stop destroying the planet. And then they take off. A classic uh, example would be, I think, 1994 in Zimbabwe, Africa, where yes. these, like, mm -hmm. 60 school children said this spaceship landed. A small alien got out and communicated with us, I think, verb or not verbally, but uh, mentally, and said, you're destroying your planet, you're polluting it, and uh, it's going to be a terrible mess if you don't do something. And almost to a T, every one of the kids recalled this is what happened. And they even drew pictures of the space alien and the ship and it landed at the schoolyard. And this is somewhat an example of what Eisenhower encountered. Aliens came down and, and complained about what we're doing to our planet, particularly our atom bomb testing program that Eisenhower initiated and was ongoing in 54. And the pollution and radiation that was spewing into the water, the air, the land, the sea. Uh, it, it, was, it was like a nightmare. And we were like children playing with matches and dynamite, really. <laughs> and so they asked Eisenhower, could you stop this testing? And he refused because uh, he says, well, I'm not going to disarm unilaterally. 
Uh, if the other uh, atomic nations also stop, and will stop. But he continued. And so uh, it makes you think that uh, people have come to their senses. We've had an atom bomb testing ban since President Kennedy's day because we've realized how incredibly damaging this would be to the environment. But we're still polluting the environment anyway. And that's why you have a theme of this from aliens that come down and try to talk to school children. <laughs> I guess because the adults are not listening, maybe right. the kids will listen to them. Uh, it's it, a fascinating story. I hope you uh, put together enough to maybe uh, get a book out. I don't know. Maybe one day. We'll see. But oh, it, it, so it's definitely going to be it, competition for me, eh? <laughs> <laughs> but it does make sense to me that the, you know, they're like, okay, well, we can't work with this existing generation, but maybe they can influence the next generation by just revealing themselves to small batches of them. Right. And uh, the children are maybe more accepting and a little less afraid and that uh, they pass along the messages that they've learned because adults just don't seem to get it, do they? <laughs> they definitely don't. Stop polluting the planet and take care of each other and stop fighting all the time. <laughs> Doesn't even make sense while we do it. Uh, right. It's sometimes for the most childish reasons. And this is another factor that aliens had to have been pretty brave to come down and talk to Eisenhower. Who knows what kind of reception they could have gotten. Uh, they don't want to be taken prisoner or fired upon or uh, mocked and ridiculed for being different. Uh, uh, so they took a chance in coming and landing here uh, after like a year long uh, communication program through radio waves, probably. And uh, they felt strong enough that uh, that they really urgently needed to speak to the leader of the free world. Eisenhower was the most popular man on the planet, and he listened to them patiently. And in fact, he used to be a pilot. He was the first American president to know about aircraft and what made them run, aerodynamics and all, and have actually flown. Uh, it was part of his military training. So he was the perfect president to speak to. And yet even he turned them down. Hmm. Well, we'll see what happens next. To be continued. <laughs> That's right. Hopefully in a happy ending, uh, a Hollywood ending. That's uh, most pleasant. And a, a Hollywood film is something we could discuss next, if you like. Yeah. Uh, do you remember Close Encounters by Steven Spielberg? Are you kidding me? I, I watch it like at least twice a year. In, ah. fact, in fact, check this out. You might know, know this. Weird, weird Alabama history. But the Close Encounters house... Is right down the street from me. Oh, the really? house wow. where the kid opens the door and the light yeah. shines in there is literally either? like a mile away from my house. <laughs> yeah. um, in the 1982 article on the first big article on the Eisenhower encounter, it mentioned that we've contacted Dr. J. Allen Hynek and asked him about these rumors that Eisenhower met with aliens. And Hynek told him that he's also heard of this and tried to research it and wants to know more. That was 1982. Mm -hmm. Dr. Hynek died about a year and a half later. Well, Steven Spielberg made a movie in the late 1970s, and he went to Dr. Hynek for information on how to create a realistic alien story. And what did they come up with? A remote air base out west in the American desert, aliens landing, uh, especially at night, 
and they were friendly and they stepped off their ship and contacted uh, Air Force officials. The only thing lacking in that movie is President Eisenhower, quite frankly. <laughs> I'm convinced Spielberg knows the Eisenhower story and he tried to tell it as best he could in a kind of fictionalized setting without the president being present. Uh, he has Richard Dreyfus and uh, Air Force officials meet with uh, the aliens that come down out of the ship. I don't have to tell you, but for anyone listening. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that of all the stories uh, Spielberg could have told, he did his actual research, talked to Dr. Hynek, and they came up with something exceptionally close to the Eisenhower encounter. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, definitely Spielberg was informed on something. There's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, when he made E.T. The Close Encounter, Spielberg took the movie to a special White House screening with President Reagan in the summer of 82. And rumors leaked out ever since that when the film was over, Reagan stood up and looked at Spielberg and said, you know, you don't know how true this story is. Now, Spielberg would not comment on this rumor. And it went on for decades. And then a couple of years ago, he finally gave an interview and said, that story is true. Reagan said it, and he was not smiling. And there were astronauts in the room and a few uh, highly placed White House officials at the time, back in 82. So Reagan, we know from his 66 sighting, had interest in UFOs and was probably briefed fairly extensively. And the whole thing hangs together now that Reagan knew and that uh, Spielberg kind of kept his mouth shut because he wanted to continue to make mm -hmm. films and live a life of freedom and artistic expression. But uh, uh, I'd sure like to see him uh, tackle the Eisenhower story directly and make a big budget movie. Uh, I've got a friend who knows a friend of Steven Spielberg, and that friend of Spielberg said, uh, Steven's done E.T. stories so many times, he's probably not going to do another one. Rats. Wow. I'll have to see if I can get Spielberg on the podcast. <laughs> well, good luck. Uh, he just grudgingly talks about such things now and then. He's a pretty closed-mouthed fellow, but I think the proof is in the pudding in his movies in which um, uh, they have uh, aliens come down and land, and they're fairly friendly, and they get away in the end. Uh, there was another movie he was a producer on, I uh, forget. It had Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy. And these little tiny spaceships come in and buzz around. Uh, I don't know if Spielberg had anything to do with uh, Cocoon with Ron Howard, but that was a, another fun yeah. movie with, yeah, aliens in human form and uh, they're friendly and uh, it, it's creative. And you kind of wonder how much do these people know? And they're trying to let us know through their films without, you know, being muzzled by the government or taken away somewhere. Maybe Heineck uh, confided in Spielberg. That's what I'm thinking. Uh, if only he had lived to talk about it. Uh, I guess he died of natural causes. I think he died of a heart attack about a year and a half after uh, uh, that National Enquirer article came out in 82. I think Heineck died in 85. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, I don't know what happened to his files. And if he put everything he knew into his files, I'd hate to think the government got a hold of him. But, uh, you know, he worked for the government in Project Blue Book. So uh, that was about researching UFO sightings. And he abruptly quit when he realized the government's just covering this up, coming up with excuses. Some of these stories are legitimate. Some were not, of course. Right. Just like all UFO sightings, there's 
the occasional hoax or mistaken identity. But a, a small percentage were quite real. And then he found out the government just hushing up the whole thing and dismissing them as a bunch of cranks. And that's what upset Jackie Gleason back in the day. He said, the government knows what's going on. I saw the proof in government hands at an Air Force base. And they're still laughing at people and making fun of them or you know, dismissing their stories, even though they know their stories are true. It really upset Jackie Gleason. Hmm. That's interesting. You know, I guess uh, on Saturday, I'm going to be interviewing um, Kathleen Martin. She's the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. And I didn't know that, but Heineck investigated that case. That doesn't surprise me. Uh, when I was a boy, that story creeped me out. And the made-for-TV movie with Bernard Hughes and the uh, aliens they showed, uh, that was scary. Uh, some of the film was a little dull. And then when they got to the scary parts, they were, the images were very fleeting and it was very frustrating. But uh, it's interesting that um, Betty Hill said the aliens showed them uh, a star pattern. Yeah. And our, yeah. And then later on, scientists found out that there were stars set up. Uh, she named uh, one or two that they hadn't even discovered yet. She said, the aliens told me this and her map and her information mapped up with our, or matched up with our, Top technology years later. What does that tell you? <laughs> that is credible. She's telling the I truth. I think so. Yeah. I, 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 have no, I have no doubt that they're telling that she was telling the truth. Yeah, I think Betty and Barney told the story honestly. They didn't make themselves out to be big heroes. I don't think they embellished it at all. And uh, they simply got tired of telling it. They stopped. Uh, uh, Barney died long ago. Betty lived a longer life. Yeah. And, Towards the end, she said, I've just run out of things to say. I'm tired of talking about it. But she did not recant. She did not change the story. They didn't catch her in a lie. So uh, it's another example of uh, some humans were driving along and some aliens just took them, looked them over, and then put them back. Uh, they were fairly safe and sound, a little traumatized under hypnosis by what happened. Mm -hmm. But uh, it almost became a source of pride for Betty Hill that, you know, this happened to me long before uh, it became a much hipper, more commonplace story in the U.S. media. Yeah. I mean, those are the, the Betty Barney Hill case and the Roswell incident are sort of what brought it into mainstream media. Right. Uh, I think uh, if you've ever seen uh, an NBC Unsolved Mysteries on Roswell, they did a pretty good even-handed story on that and even had footage of one of the the military men who were there and looked over the wreckage and told him on camera, yes, this was alien. And uh, it was shocking to hear, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, um, Marcel, oh, it was his Marcel's father. Uh, darn it, I can't remember his name. But, uh, you know, the alien crash uh, was like one of two or three at that time. Something went horribly wrong in a thunderstorm. And that's a believable story that lightning, you know, an electrical storm blasted their craft and, and sent them hurtling to earth. Uh, Linda Moulton Howe was telling me, and I've seen some documents that seem to back it up, that there was a uh, an escape pod that crashed a few miles from the Roswell crash that had the bodies in it, that mm -hmm. they knew they were in trouble and ejected. 
And uh, I uncovered some information that said somewhat of the same thing in Cape Girardeau in 1941, that there was a secondary crash site. It might have been something like an escape pod and that the police were called. And they hustled that information or the military, I think, hustled that uh, evidence out of there. So uh, it's, uh, Cape Girardeau in 41 was almost a, a, a template for what happened yeah. in Roswell. And so uh, it's just uh, dramatic and exciting but frustrating. We can't get the whole story. And you kind of wonder if it's locked up, buried deep in uh, some files in a vault. And there's even people today in charge of the government who don't know it's down there mm -hmm. or locked away. And they're honestly telling you that, well, we don't have anything on that uh, when they don't really know uh, because they haven't looked in the right places. True. How about the Aurora, Texas UFO incident? I don't know. I go back and forth on that one. I know uh, Kevin Randall has looked into it, and so does uh, so Jim does the Mars fellow. Did. Yeah, Jim Mars did. Uh, there was a fellow uh, who ran uh, a UFO wreckage type show. I know oh, his name escapes me on the uh, History Channel. Uh, he looked into it too, and that man and Kevin Randall both came to the conclusion that there was nothing to it that it was uh, at best a crashed balloon. It was a metal clad balloon that uh, was being experimented, experimented at the time in 1897 by uh, soldiers at like Fort Hood or uh, Fort Worth and that it crashed uh, and that, uh, that was all there was to it. But uh, Jim Marr seemed to think there was more to that. And uh, we've lost a, a really great researcher in Jim Mars. That's a shame he passed away. But I think he wrote so many books, he got everything out that he wanted to say too. Yeah, yeah. I used to, I knew, well, I didn't know him like in person, but I used to talk to him online all the time oh, uh, cool. before he passed away. Yeah, uh, we've lost Dr. Stanton Friedman, uh, an early UFO researcher. He didn't take any guff from anyone. Uh, yeah. He uh, was a dogged, determined researcher, a good spokesperson for uh, mm -hmm. taking the subject seriously. And we've lost Art Bell, who was another pioneer who uh, took stories seriously and got them on the air and got them notoriety. Uh, we've suffered uh, some major blows here in the yeah. so-called UFO community. We have to carry on, Ooh. but with facts, not with wild, distorted uh, speculation and theories that maybe harm the UFO uh, research community and, and make us look uh, bad as a group when uh, someone comes together or someone puts out a story that, you know, is just so ridiculous and mm -hmm. over the top. Uh, I hope that will stop. But, you know, what would help if, if the government finally concedes, yeah, there's some stuff going on. We can't tell you everything, but here's some footage and here's some files. And we are being visited and uh, get over it. <laughs> Have you watched the documentary, uh, the, the Jeremy Corbell documentary with Bob Lazar? Uh, I've seen bits and pieces of that and of other Bob Lazar interviews. And here's another person who has not changed the story one iota. He won't take big money from Hollywood producers. They approached him, he said, asked him to sell his story as long as they can jazz it up and make it like evil invading aliens and, and fictionalize it. And he refuses to his credit to take their offers and ruin his experience. And he's told it as best he could and he clammed up for a while and he's trying to tell it again and he's not changing or recanting. He said he worked on some recovered craft, or at least one, and mm -hmm. saw other uh, craft, some of them damaged and some of them undamaged, at an air base in remote desert of Nevada, which is kind of 
what this document uh, from 1989, the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, lost or had leaked uh, in 2017, seems to say the same thing, that there's like S4, Sector, sec sector 4 or Section 4 yeah. near Area 51 that uh, has these recovered craft and we're looking them over. It's probably a little over our heads. And Bob Lazar probably was authentic, is authentic, and was telling just what he knew. And uh, I uh, am thankful that he didn't embarrass himself by uh, selling out for the highest bidder and changing the, the story or distorting it. He stuck to his guns, and that's all he has to say. Yeah. yeah, And he's been proving, like some of the stuff that he has said has, has been proven to be true. Uh, that he's showing that documentary, like um, like he describes this weird um, hand type of thing that you have to put your hand in it to open the door, and they, that's been proven to exist. Um, yeah. Element one fifteen is now on yeah. a periodic table. What uh, intrigues me about what he stated, uh, the most intriguing part was one day he was allowed to look over a briefing document on these craft and it talked about alien beings. He said there were black and white photos of uh, autopsy aliens and uh, information of where they came from. I think uh, a star system beyond or within the Zeta Reticuli system and that, you know, information on uh, the aliens themselves. Well, where did we get that? We had to have communicated somehow or they left a book behind saying <laughs> where they're from and here, here we are, a photo album or something. So uh, our government knows more again and we're being told, and supposedly Eisenhower, towards his last years as president, was getting very irritated that the government that he assigned to look into this was not getting back to him and, and withholding information from even him. And uh, Linda Moulton Howe had a source, I put this in my book, that uh, said that Eisenhower convened a meeting and told him either you get me this information, the latest on this uh, uh, alien craft that we're exploring, and uh, our relations with the uh, the humanoid type uh, creatures, or I'm going to take the Fifth Army and I'm going to invade the base and we're going to rip the doors off the place and I'll just go wherever I please. And so that threat got back and I think they finally got uh, Ike some information. Uh, and once again, anyone can state anything on the internet, on the internet or in an interview, but uh, this source kind of backed it up and uh, was afraid for his life telling Linda this story. But he said Eisenhower was attending this meeting, uh, a briefing, and that Nixon was there and was just kind of flabbergasted by everything. He had very little to say as if he had not been briefed very much. Uh, and that was the way it was with vice presidents in those days. You didn't tell them too much. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, things have changed. And I think uh, presidents are fairly well informed and maybe even vice presidents because we know they can take over at a moment's notice. Yeah. It's incredible. And, you know, I, mean, I I think about what are the chances of us being alone in the universe? Oh, pretty slim. It's incredibly vast. <laughs> Even our Milky Way galaxy may have millions of planets and some sort of life form on them. And then, then there's like millions or zillions of galaxies out there. And the idea that we're the only creatures, or, you know, the only beings, it's arrogant and it's short-sighted and foolish in my opinion <laughs> to say we're the only ones i mean 
Yeah, we, we would be that ready to sit there and believe that, right? Yeah. Uh, I think more and more people are opening up to the fact that, yeah, we're not alone, and that aliens could be coming from another dimension entirely and live in a different vibratory rate or a, a plane of existence that we cannot perceive with our human eyes. And so uh, that's mind-blowing as well. I know some of this stuff sounds like Star Trek. But uh, you kind of wonder what Gene Roddenberry had learned over the years. He had his contacts in Air Force and space program, and they even named uh, one of the space shuttles, uh, what, the Enterprise? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, those are fun movies, and you wonder how much is this fictionalized entertainment and how much is inside information that they're leaking and getting you used to when you watch the movie. And the same for Star Wars. I, or Yeah, Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Fascinating topic. Um, so before we wrap this up, where can my listeners find you? Um, I'm on Facebook. You can look directly under Facebook under President Eisenhower's Close Encounters or uh, Cape Girardeau's 1941 UFO Crash, America's First. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and Pinterest. Uh, you can uh, contact my website. Go there at www.mo41.info, mo41.info, uh, and there's a way to contact me from that uh, point. And uh, I generally get uh, the occasional story from people who've heard dribs and drabs of uh, what I've researched and usually pretty kind remarks and supportive stuff. And uh, it's always nice to hear from good people. And you can find my books at uh, uh, argus.com, where shipping is free, and of course, Amazon. And my latest uh, on Eisenhower is from foundationsbooks.net, where uh, you can order it in all its electronic form, or uh, as maybe you and I prefer, the old-fashioned paperback uh, <laughs> uh, that you can stick on a shelf and take with you wherever you go. All right. So if you uh, send me an email with all those links, I'll put those in the notes of this episode so my listeners can buy your books and reach out to you. Sounds like a plan to me. Maybe you'll get some more podcast gigs off of me. Mm -hmm. Well, it's <laughs> always fun to talk with open-minded people. We can't believe everything we're told in society. There are crooks and liars and con artists and such, and people who just want attention or are mentally unstable. Mm -hmm. But I think the majority of Hosts and subjects are valid and need to be discussed and are, and the people of this world are responding and listening and they, they're intrigued and excited, want to learn more. And I hope they find plenty of information through my book where I try to cram in as much data as I can. It's not some skimpy little thing. I put in uh, all the sources of who said what and when, and uh, I'm very uh, pleased with all the positive reviews I've gotten on Amazon and other places. Uh, it's always nice to get this and I'm in negotiations with a TV production company. We'll see if we can get the, uh, uh Eisenhower tale told on the small screen at the least. Oh, that'd be fantastic. I'd sure love to see that. Yeah. Well, thank you for all the good work that you're doing. Uh, you're welcome. And thank you for having me on the show. Great. All right. Hang on one second. And I'm just going to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. 
You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.